Hello, welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz. It is so nice to have you here today. I'm so glad you're tuning in for this episode with Oliver English because it's an episode that I left feeling so inspired and fulfilled and I know you're going to absolutely love it. I feel like my fall is off to a really good start. I know fall technically still has not started. September is technically still summer, but I feel like I'm really getting into my cozy fall era. Like I'm developing new hobbies. I'm trying new recipes out. I'm really settling in in my home. And there's something so special about having conversations like the one we have today that really centers around our food systems that get you into that mindset of learning, of really being in touch with yourself, of that like interpersonal growth that I am so interested in this season of the year, but also what I hope that this show really represents for you. I hope that you are really entering this era of learning and asking questions and really being inspired on your own. Also, quickly, I'm sharing a lot of recommendations, podcast recaps, all of the fall things in the EcoChic newsletter. You can sign up for that in the show notes below. It comes out every other Tuesday, and I am someone who lives in my inbox when I don't want to scroll anymore, but I'm on my phone for whatever reason. Like, I am constantly checking my email. And there's never anything in there that I really want to read, but let me tell you, this newsletter is something that you want to read. It's good recommendations, it's books, it's all of the things for living a more eco-conscious, eco-chic lifestyle. Again, in the show notes, check it out. I think you will really enjoy it. And you'll find all my social links down there as well. But on to today's conversation, I am so, so honored and thrilled to share this conversation with Oliver English. Oliver is a filmmaker, photographer, chef, and food advocate. He is the co-founder and CEO of Common Table Creative, an impact-driven production and hospitality company. Prior to launching Common Table Creative, Oliver led his family company, the Olive Group's international restaurant development sector, opening restaurants throughout North America, Asia, the Caribbean, and the Middle East. We talk about that experience today and what it meant to truly grow up around food and how this global experience in restaurants and hospitality was so impactful to the work that he does today, really advocating for sustainable, regenerative, holistic food systems. I'm excited for you to listen into this conversation because, again, we are talking about food systems. We're also talking about storytelling. We're talking about the value of dinners with your family, with your friends. We're talking about how food is this common tie throughout all of our lives and how deeply impactful it can be if we think more deeply about the food that we're eating. So the common theme today is food for the future. Today's conversation and the points we make today are very deeply inspired by Feeding Tomorrow, a film by Common Table Creative that will be released at the beginning of next year. There were parts of today's conversation that were really deeply vulnerable and emotional, and even listening back to it, I got a little emotional. I hope that you really enjoyed today's conversation, and I hope you really learn a lot from it. I am so deeply, deeply thankful to Oliver for giving me his time and for opening up so much with us. I loved, loved, loved learning more about these global experiences and more about how healthcare and education and farmers and the food systems and policy and all of these different pillars of our society today can really more deeply interact for a healthier, more planet-forward food system. If you enjoy this conversation with Oliver English on EcoChic, make sure that you share it with a friend. Make sure you post it on our Instagram stories, share it in the family group chat. You can write and review the show wherever you're listening. And again, all of my links are down in the show notes if you want to get in touch. With that, let's jump in. I know you'll really love today's conversation with Oliver English, all about the future of food. I have to ask you my favorite icebreaker question, Which and is? I hope you'll 
you'll play along with it. Let's say you've been waiting five years to get off this wait list for the best restaurant in the world. It's in Paris. And you've planned your whole trip around going, possibly getting off the wait list. They call you. You're in. But you find out the head chef is a rat. Do you still go? <laughs> well, based on a very similar type of plot to a similar movie, um, I would have to go. I don't, know, I don't care who it is. If there's a wait list that's, that's that long for that long period of time and I've made it all the way to Paris, check it out. Yeah. Yeah. The rat restaurant. I would check out the rat restaurant. Okay. If the, if the, if the ratings are good, everyone else is going. Uh, I don't want to discriminate. Maybe, maybe they're a great cook and they're bringing something really special to the table. Yeah. No health code violations are keeping you away. Uh, that's a whole different story. <laughs> but if it's a French rat, maybe, maybe they're very put together and, yeah. and, and, you know, have it together. I that is a that. very, how about yourself? Would you go? Yeah, I would. Absolutely. I feel like if you've made it all the way there, I also just tend to be someone who appreciates in general, if someone puts together that you know, spends time putting together a meal or an experience or some kind of a dinner, I appreciate how much love and energy and time goes into that. So I'm willing to go and try something for sure. Even if it is a rat, hopefully it's rat too. You never well, that's a good answer. And that's a good way to think about meals like people have put the time and energy into creating something really beautiful for you you're someone who has eaten all around the world you've created restaurants all around the world i want to zoom out before we even get into your background what do you think makes a really great meal and mm. is that really great meal your definition now different from your definition 10 years ago it's a great question i think what makes a really great meal is of course the food but there's a really big part of it that is the energy and the components around the meal. You know, where are you? What is, what's the vibe like? And who are you with? I think are really two of the key elements there. So what is the service and the design like? Um, and then who is your company? And you can have those first two things, but if, you, if, if the design's amazing and the company's amazing and the food is not as good, it'll taste better. Alternatively, if, the design is terrible and it's bad lighting and the service is horrible and you're not with people that you like and the food's amazing. I don't think that food's going to taste as good. So it's kind of this, in my opinion, this combination of elements that create the perfect experience. I think one of the things that's not overlooked but underappreciated is the element of design. And it could be a really simple design. It could be someone's house. But do you feel comfortable in that space? Do you feel warm? Do you feel welcome? That's a combination of colors and textures and lighting. Uh, and all the things that go into a special place. Is there an amazing view of the ocean? Is it on a mountain? Are you in nature? All of these things sort of set the stage for, I think, the culinary experience. The second is the service. Uh, if you're at a restaurant, how are you being looked after? How are these people making you feel? Do you feel like you're in a stuffy environment? Do you feel like you are being looked after, like you are in someone's home? Or maybe you are in someone's home. And, you know, someone's mom or someone's grandma is just feeding you a great meal and taking good care of you. That food's going to taste a lot better. Um, so if you have all of those things and incredible food, you are already in the top 1% of, I think, dining or hospitality experiences. And to answer your second question, yes, my perspective has changed. Um, I think what I thought was an incredible meal years ago was a little bit different. I think it was more based on flavor and the sort of just purely deliciousness, which is still important, but now my frame and context have shifted a little bit to also appreciate the locality, the seasonality, the sustainability of 
a particular dish or a restaurant experience, the design and the service elements are still very true. But I would say that my appreciation and perspective of where the food's coming from, the story that's being told, the farmers that are being supported in that journey is now a really critical part of how I see the whole experience. Wow, that's such a thoughtful answer. Thank you. And I like what you mentioned about hospitality because I told you I recently watched The Bear and I had never thought about hospitality to that level of detail before watching that show and seeing what it meant for folks at the restaurant to be listening in on a conversation and saying like, oh, these folks are really excited to try whatever it was like deep dish pizza. And they were going to run and get it for these people so they could try it before their trip was over or it's someone's birthday and they're bringing out a little cake or whatever it is. Like that level of attention from the restaurant was so interesting for me as a viewer. And, and these are like fake restaurant environments that they make for the show, but are clearly rooted in real practices of hospitality. So that was so cool for me to see. But also what you're mentioning about like how well cared for do you feel in this environment? So it's not just a restaurant. It's like someone at their home feeding you a meal, their grandmother feeding you a meal, that like kind of human element of the meal is so important. Absolutely. It's, it's so critical. And like you said, those anticipating the guests needs, wants, desires, even before they do, is that element of how you make them feel. You know, um, there's a quote that we use a lot in the hospitality business. People will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but they will not forget how you made them feel. Um, and that is very true. You know, people will forget if you mess up an order or if you, you know, bring them an extra side of something that they didn't order, whatever it was. But if you deliver that with grace and with a smile and with warmth, that goes a long way. And people do remember how you make them feel. And that's true in restaurants. That's true at someone's home. And I think how good the food is, is complementary to that feeling of warmth and hospitality and, and feeling welcomed ultimately and feeling seen and heard which I think is the, the, the cornerstone of hospitality. These are all very personal ways to think about a meal. So I have to ask, because I know you grew up in restaurants. Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood, your upbringing, especially around food? Absolutely. So I joke that I was born on a banquette uh, in a restaurant, <laughs> and that's not fully true. It's not far off from the truth, but um, my I grew up, you know, deeply involved in a rest in the restaurant business and in a restaurant family. Uh, my parents and my brother and my sister, our parents, met at cooking school, the Culinary Institute of America, and they opened restaurants together. They worked for a number of other restaurateurs. They traveled around Europe, and then they opened restaurants together in Boston when we were really young. And they opened up their first restaurant the year before I was born. And so the joke being that, you know, my mom came back from the hospital, and a couple hours later, you know, or the next day, I was being passed around to the regulars, and I was like being involved in the restaurant business from when I was literally born. Um, and that remained true through most of my life. You know, from when I was very young, I was a dishwasher, busboy, bartender, barback, server, you know, uh, pizza cook, line cook, you kind of name it all throughout the years. Um, but even before that, when we were growing up, we were always helping our parents with different hospitality experiences, so different versions of pop-up events. They always have in Boston called spin and solo events. Um, they would do some kind of a pop-up food table at this event or that event or this thing. And we would always be around helping. You know, we would always be around um, assisting in some way. I remember very young, you know, my dad used to clip me to the butcher block table in the kitchen and listen to loud rock music as he prepped for that day. Or my mom would take me around with her and she designed all the restaurants. So 
she would take me around and we would have this big swash book of Pantones in the front seat. We'd go to the fabric store to pick out new fabric for the banquettes or for the curtains. We'd go to the flower market and we would do all these arrangements. So I can actually, not, I'm not the best flower arranger, but for a guy, I'm decent. You had to learn. I had to learn. And so it was always thinking about these little elements of not just service, because she also ran the front of house, but also design and detail. And how do we think about the height of this phase or the angle of this or the color of that? How are all of these different elements working together to create an environment that the hospitality experience is now a part of? So my mom ran the front of house, designed the restaurants, my dad ran the kitchen. And so I grew up my entire life, like in and around restaurants. And if we weren't working the restaurants, we were going to visit a restaurant and I was helping them from a very young age. So I said, I didn't learn math or spelling from my parents, but I did learn how to decorate a table and make a damn good cheese board. And I eventually, <laughs> eventually I learned, well, math is still, you know, spelling still here and there, but you know, I eventually learned those things, um, which was great, but, uh, still the elements of that hospitality experience growing up in that world were really central to my whole childhood. And now I understand a big part of what I'm doing today. Wow. Well, and I also have to ask, so because your family was always so deeply ingrained in these professional experiences of food, restaurants, cooking, what was it like at home? Was that just something that your family did to connect with each other? Or was it like cooking at home was taking a back seat? Was that like not nearly as important of an experience? For sure. I think it was always as important of an experience. I think in the early days, there was times when my parents were just at the restaurant all day because they opened yeah. 89. They were there seven days a week, both of them pretty much every day. So I remember a lot of, we had a lot of meals in the restaurant um, themselves, which was now I'm looking back, I'm like, wow, what an incredible blessing that was. Yeah. Um, a lot of family meals. Anyone who's ever worked in a restaurant or maybe seen the bear has heard about family meal. And that's the meal that the staff enjoys before our service. And so I have great memories of sitting with the entire kitchen staff everybody front of house back of house having family meal from a very young age um but food was always a very big part of our of our home world as well um and always working together and growing up we always had a task we always had something to do it wasn't like mom's cooking dinner and then everyone else just shows up right. like no everyone you know we were setting the table we were sweeping the floor we were lighting the candles we were helping prep we were doing something engaged in the meal and then when we sat down together, it was, this is kind of before cell phones, but it was, it was a hardcore, no cell phone zone, um, which I now look back on and really appreciate. And I think that was really an important part of my whole sort of childhood and growing up. But whether we were at the restaurants or we were at home, taking time to prepare a meal and taking time to sit around the table and enjoy the celebration of enjoying that meal with the simplicity of, you know, a couple lit candles and not having your phone there. Uh, was always really central to that growing up experience. Wow. Wow, that sounds so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. That feels really intimate to know about someone, like for the sure. way that they eat with their family, like such an experience. For sure. And then, you know, my parents got divorced. Then we had two Thanksgivings, two Christmases. And, you know, there's good and bad that comes with that. But I would say in both of those parts of my life, there was still opportunity to come together around food. And even during difficult times in our family life, there was always, the kitchen was always a safe space. And that is something that I'll always remember. Whenever there was an issue, whenever there was a family problem, whatever, at, at some point we would always congregate together around the kitchen dining room. You know that part of the house that everyone yeah. actually hangs out in? And we would cook a meal together. And, and those memories are, I think, incredibly positive for me. Really, really beautiful. 
Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much. That seems, again, very intimate and very personal. So I appreciate you sharing Yeah, sure. That. Hopefully it's not too intimate. But, no, you know, it's, no, I was it's, going to say. It's part of it. No, that's, I feel like that's so important to know about someone. Also, knowing that you work very closely with your brother and you're very close with your sister. And like your family still shares a lot of these core experiences around food in both a professional and personal setting. And I think what's interesting about that, I had this conversation with a girlfriend recently about how um, I'm one of four and my siblings are all very close in age. And my mom always was really strict about us sitting at the table, even if it was just the four of us to like sit and have dinner. And like that was a really important time. And this uh, girlfriend of mine was saying like she and her family did the same thing. And through how through high school, the family would play cards after dinner because the parents wanted them to spend more time together at the table. And having those experiences when you're young and growing up and being kind of like forced to sit at the table and focus on that experience is so important for you long term yes. and how that family continues to connect, whether or not it's around food, but just like connect long term together. 100%. And I think it is one of the most fundamental aspects, not only of human life, but of just human experience is coming together around the table. And you know, I, even though during some difficult times when my parents were getting divorced, you know, my mom was kind of raising us. It was those moments that we spent together around the table, the lighting, the candles, putting the phones away, everyone pitching in and just connecting for an hour, um, a couple times a week. Those moments I am convinced now, not only kept our family together, but also created lifelong bonds that I, you know, I'm still grateful for. And I think whatever the family unit looks like, and it can look like a lot of different things, and that's totally great. But coming together as a unit, whatever that looks like, extended family, whoever it is, a couple times a week around a shared meal that you cook together, I think is profoundly important for human relations, for empathy, for building long-term relationships, and also for our own mental health. There's something about being seen and heard. There's something about taking a break from the cell phone and the computer and all the screens that I myself am as, you know, tr you know connected to, addicted to, you, as, as everyone um, by design, but that moment and those moments together around the table are fundamental for human, planetary, uh, and interpersonal well-being. Quick break to tell you about Babbel. If you look at recent search trends, interest in learning a new language is only increasing over time, and there tends to be a spike in the fall because it's the perfect time to get cozy, pick up a new hobby, learn a new language. And with Babbel, you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, just in time to show off for the holidays. To me, the beauty of Babbel is that Babbel is committed to teaching you real conversations designed by real people. So you're learning how to ask for directions, how to order food, how to speak to local merchants when you're traveling to a different country. You're not consulting with language apps while you're on vacation because you actually know how to have a conversation. Before Babbel, if you wanted to learn a language, you'd have to use a private tutor, paying hundreds of dollars if you really wanted that hands-on, real person, real conversation experience, or you could just fool yourself with language apps that are basically just games. Babbel has quick 10-minute lesson options designed by over 150 language experts to help you start learning a new language in as little as three weeks. I'm sure you've heard so, so much about Babbel, and that's because it really works. With over 10 million subscriptions sold, Babbel is real language learning for real conversations. Here's your special limited time deal for our listeners to get you started right now. Get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash eco chic. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash eco chic, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash eco chic 
rules and restrictions may apply. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. I feel like everything you say, I'm like, wow, this is so profound. Like, it's just so important to hear, even though these are concepts that we very often will take for granted. It's like, of course, I like to sit with my family and friends around a dinner table and the resurgence of the dinner party, especially in a post-COVID world. Why is that so impactful right now? And why are we seeing so many trends around like tablescapes? And this, again, this resurgence of the dinner party, it's because people want that space to connect with each other. Yes, it's core to our humanity. And there's an increasing mental health crisis in this country. There's an increasing epidemic of loneliness in this country. And the way to address and fix that is through having more family and community dinners. I think that's a big part of it, you know, feeling like you are part of something bigger, um, whether it's your own family, your community or society. But I think that there is a reason why people light up at a family dinner or at a community dinner. There is a reason. There is that. My favorite part is there's like an hour and a half after everyone's eaten and it's before everything's cleaned up, like the candles are kind of coming down and everyone is finally like fully relaxed and they're satiated and they're just chatting. And maybe the table's a little messy, like it's just perfect. And there's that like golden hour where everyone, it's like kind of bliss and you can just walk around and people are like really engaged in conversation. That is a really beautiful part of the human experience and connection. I think if we can get back to that in any level, on a daily basis with our family, in a bigger community basis, and at a societal level, you know, those experiences uh, have the opportunity or have the capacity to really change the way that we interact with each other. And I think have a big impact on not just human health, but also environmental health. If we take time to sit together around the table and enjoy the food and think about the food and where the food comes from, I think there's a higher likelihood that we will appreciate the environmental impact the social impact of that food. But if we're just ordering things online and we're scarfing it down, looking at our phone, you're really not connected to where that food is coming from, how it's being grown, the impact that that's having on the world around us. You're just kind of part of the system. So the table allows us some time to sit together, to pause, to enjoy, to reflect, and to communicate in a way that allows us to be part of something bigger. I feel like this is the perfect opportunity to now ask you, when did you start thinking more deeply about the ingredients of a meal or thinking about the ingredients that folks are gathering around, whatever it may be. Because there's been a shift here, even in the way that you're describing meals. It's not just about the act of preparation or being in the kitchen and the design of a restaurant. Now we're thinking about who is growing our food. So what did that transition look like for you? Absolutely. Um, And thank you for asking. About seven years ago at this point, I was living and working in Abu Dhabi to open a new restaurant. And part of my job was to go out and train the staff, get everything up and running, be the liaison with the chef, right? open the whole restaurant, and then put a manager in place to uh, get everything running. And one night, I was sitting at the bar in my, in my nice suit, my clean shave, my very New York self, and I ordered a big spread, sort of steak frites, salad, big glass of wine, whole big thing. And about halfway through my meal, I looked down at all this food. I kind of fell back like this and was like, wait a minute, where did all this food come from? And I realized that I'd never asked that question. And I asked our chef to come out and we had a long conversation about where each one of the ingredients came from. It was like over six ingredients from multiple countries. And we talked about, you know, how did the tomatoes get here? When did they get here? And he said, oh, maybe they were harvested three weeks ago. They were put it on a refrigerated truck, on a plane, on a boat, on another container. They finally made it through customs. They got here and 
They look kind of sad. So we've got to add salt and fat and sugar to make it taste like something. And we went through all these ingredients. And after, after the end of this conversation, I was like, oh my gosh, A, there was a huge environmental footprint to all this food here. B, I've seen how much food gets wasted. C, I've never asked the question, where does food come from? And I grew up in the restaurant business, as we know, studied hospitality in school, worked for a number of different chefs around the United States and Europe. And I'm now in this experience, sort of leading this international development for a hospitality company, yet I have never asked the question, where does food come from? How is that possible? And if I am this disconnected, I'm sure others must be as well. So I was a little bit shook. I was a little bit embarrassed. I was like, what? I was just, I was, I was feeling a little bit lost, honestly. And I got back to New York. I started asking some friends, you know, guys, where do you think the blueberries are from? And the answer was, oh, the grocery store. And I was like, huh, maybe, yeah. maybe this is a sign of a bigger disconnect. And so I started reading everything I could, watching everything I could about sustainability and food systems, et cetera. I went, back, I went down to the Bahamas three months later, and we were there to open another restaurant. And I went into the walk-in refrigerator, everything, the food looked decrepit and sad and limp. And I said, we can't serve this. Can you send me to a local farm to maybe get some local produce for the restaurant? And I ended up meeting this farmer named Sakane. Three hours with this guy, and he had a big hat, big smile, and a love and passion for food and farming that I just found inspiring. We spent three hours together on this farm that he and the family he was working with were converting to an organic farm right next to the airport, planes flying in down over us. And he shared with me that the weather patterns that he grew up with are so different from the ones that he sees today that he cannot predict what to plant. He shared with me that there used to be 12,000 farms in the Bahamas, and now there are 1,200. And we looked in the distance, we saw um, landfill fires, and big ones. And he said, because there's so much trash coming in because the food's being imported, over 90% of the Bahamas, it comes in on styrofoam trays wrapped in plastic. They send it to the landfill and they burn it. And he also said he was one of the first people in his family to go more plant-based, plant-forward, and one of the only people to not develop a chronic disease. And so he, I, I later came to appreciate, for the first time, shared with me how deeply interconnected all of these areas were and how food was a common thread through them, through this environmental agriculture component, through this healthcare, human health component, and through this education, um, societal component, food access component. And after this meeting, I was so inspired. I was like, more people need to meet farmers. It took me 26, 27 years of my life of growing up in this world. And I finally met a farmer that I had to seek out. What happens if more people met farmers? And I called my little brother at the time and he was the New York Film Academy. And he was a, an early environmentalist, got me into environmental issues before I was really into them. And he said, tell him we're gonna come back, my brother Simon, tell him we're gonna come back and film an interview with him in three months. I said, yeah, that sounds cool. Um, and I was like, I have no idea how to do that, but we'll, we'll figure it out. And I told him we'll be back in three months. And three months later, we came back, uh, my brother and I, to film our first interview with Sakane. That would lead to us filming other interviews with other inspirational leaders in the world of food who were working to create a healthier food system. Um, originally farmers, but then that grew to chefs, climate scientists, nutritionists, educators, policymakers, um, about what the future of food would look like. And we looked at these big interconnected issues of um, human health, environmental health, 
uh, societal health and said, with population growth, climate change, all these issues, how do we feed humanity into the future in a way that nourishes not just our bodies, but also the planet? And how do we make sure everyone has access to that healthy food? And so a chance encounter with a farmer would lead us to begin what would then become, or what has become, a six and a half year journey to create a feature length documentary about the future of food that is called Feeding Tomorrow. And it'll be out uh, in the beginning of 2024. Congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations. I'm really so deeply impressed with this pivot that you clearly made. You met someone that really impacted you and you were like, what if more people talk to farmers? What if more people meet farmers? How do we get these stories out? And you just made it happen for yourself. And I have to say, I'm so impressed with the attitude of like, I'm just going to figure it out. I'm going to call my brother and we're going to make this happen. And I also have to say, I'm so deeply impressed with this experience you had because for a lot of people, that interconnection doesn't happen so concisely. It doesn't happen so comprehensively where you realize that your food is tied to your health, that it's tied to your environment, that it's tied to your family and your relationship with the land. And a lot of people don't have that that luxury of better understanding how their food is impacting their life. Because like you said earlier, like you alluded to, a lot of people are just part of the system. The blueberries come from the grocery store. You don't have to think that deeply about it for a lot of the Western world. So it's really inspiring that you had that opportunity and really ran with it. Before we even talk about the film, because I'm dying to know, just quickly, what happened to the restaurant? Did they end up at the restaurant in the Bahamas? Did they end up buying food from this farm? Like what ended up happening? There ended up becoming uh, a little bit more sourcing of local food. Wonderful. Um, I would say that I also, at that point, I kind of had this decision to make of, do I continue in the restaurant business? Do I continue this pivot to sustainability? And I had a lot of internal conflict there, but every single farmer that we would continue to meet, every single one of these, of these sustainability experts that we would continue to meet, I just internally became more and more convinced that this was my purpose and this was my passion and this is what I had to do. And it was not the easy decision to make because it was my family restaurant business that I was you know, moving on from, but it was to pursue a message that I knew would ultimately impact that business and all of humanity. And the decision became, do I try to work on just changing the ordering of food from a small handful of restaurants, or do we try to change the macro narrative across society about how food is grown, where it comes from, and how it impacts all of us? And I think that has a potential to have a much bigger impact if we think about the large scale change. And what you were saying earlier, it is so true. Most people don't know. And I've come to understand and appreciate, and it's taken me years of research and interviewing and reading and films and to come to this appreciation and understanding. But most people, almost everybody is trying to do the best that they can with what they've got. Most people are trying to put you know, healthy food, hot food on the table for their families to feed themselves with the best information they have available. I truly believe that. The system that has been set up to make the easy, cheap, healthy food available disadvantages many of those people, and it makes the inexpensive, unhealthy food option more readily available to more people. And a lot of the whole production process is hidden in many ways, some in obvious, some in not so obvious ways. So I think that there is a gap in awareness between what most people know and what the actual truth is about where the food is coming from. In our experience with the film, once people start to have a better understanding, they are 
encouraged to be part of a more sustainable future. We just need to create more awareness amongst the people. We also need to help change the big macro systems that everyone is operating within so that everyone in every community, in every part of the country, and eventually the world has the ability to help support sustainable food systems, the ability to, to grow and eat healthy, sustainable, nutrient-dense food, um, and to do that in a way that is not wasteful or wasting resources at a macro level, which is what's happening now. I appreciate you saying that. I, and I completely agree with what you were saying around the vast majority of people are trying to do the best they can with what's available to them. And we also live in a world where consumers aren't typically armed with this knowledge of what is truly best for you. I was just having this conversation with my mother a couple of weeks ago that we were joking growing up, my family, all of these, again, I was one of four kids. We loved those frozen lasagnas. Like we were frozen lasagna people. We were joking because we were like, my mom's a gardener. She's very into her supplements and the vitamins. And like, she is a health conscious person. And we were talking like there just wasn't that awareness. It never occurred to her that she could make a lasagna, you know, like and all of these things like that was the convenience and that was just the thing of the time. And that was the early 2000s, late 90s. Yeah. Like that was just the thing to do. So if it's something that you're not even questioning, what are the chances of you digging a little bit deeper and further educating yourself? And the frozen lasagna is not like the worst thing in the world. But you know what I mean? Like when it comes to knowing where your food is truly coming from, like that's a whole different uh, barrier to entry for a lot of people. And so I'd love to pivot a little bit and something that you mentioned I would love to hear more about is this education of the public, of consumers, of how they can be part of a more sustainable food system. Because it's not just shopping at the farmer's market. It's not just doing all of these kind of shiny, outwardly facing sustainability actions when it comes to your food. But truly being a part of a sustainable food system, what does that look like? Absolutely. And to the to the education piece, I think the first piece is about awareness and education. And that was really one of our big sources of inspiration for creating this film. Um, Feeding Tomorrow was created with the goal and vision of to educate and inspire people to think differently about food and to start asking questions. And we realized that there are so many different, and I especially realize this having worked on this for many years, there are so many different areas of complexity of sourcing or food waste or regeneration or looking at seafood or growing food. There's a, a, a number of different areas that you can really look into. And then there's multiple levels of deep diving you can do in each one of those areas. What we are trying to do was to create a broad way of understanding the food system and a broad way of looking at how does food in, interact with and communicate with the environment and ecosystems, soil? How does the food system interact with human health and healthcare and healing our bodies? And then how does food interact with education and healthy food access in our society. And those are the three big areas of the film that we look at through farmers, healthcare professionals, and educators. And we kind of look at, here are solutions in society that we already have for creating healthier, more sustainable options in every one of these areas. So we are trying to create a big sense of awareness about these issues and say, look, these issues affect all of us. Whether if you're not an environmentalist, maybe you've had a relative who's had cancer. If you have not had any, anyone who's been sick, maybe you know someone whose school has really bad school lunches. Or if you're someone who, you know, your kids go to a great school, they have great school lunches, you really are, you care about the environment and you realize that, oh, food is connected to the environment. So our, our point is that I think food touches 
every single part of our lives and every single one of us in a profound ways throughout our entire life. And we also interact with the earth in a profound way through the food that we eat, the food that we source. And so trying to show up broad in those connections, A, is very important. And B, how do we show that the health of the food that we eat is connected to the health of the food of the planet? And what we also know is that the food that is coming from the healthiest, most sustainable farms that are not using chemicals, are not using pesticides, are integrating animals, are focusing on their soil health, those are the same foods that are the best for us or the most nutrient dense and the most healing versus the food that comes from large industrialized agricultural food systems, whether it's animal agriculture or large scale monocropping, that food has very little to few nutrients, is pumped full of chemicals and is destroying ecosystems while it's being produced. So food that is good for our own health is also good for the environment. Food that is bad for our health is often bad for the environment. And I think people can really connect with, with those ideas. And it's also the realization that through small choices, through small impacts, the food choices that we can make and have on a daily basis are profound and they have a profound impact on the world around us. And just to say everyone's got to go to the farmer's market three times a week is not currently feasible. And that is because the system has been set up through federal farm bill subsidies to make the inexpensive corner store fast food meal, quote unquote, product less expensive and more readily available than the nutrient dense organic or regenerative alternative. So we need to create systems and policies that make the healthy, nutritious, sustainable food more available at the same price or lower than the alternative. Um, once we do that, we can start to have a real impact. A couple big ways that you can have an impact on a daily basis. Uh, number one, the lowest hanging fruit is composting. Uh, composting is one of the first acts of regeneration that many of us do. Um, and that is not my quote. That is a, a quote I heard from a friend of mine who works in the soil world. But it's so true. It is one of the first times that our consumption can become a regenerative aspect where what we do, what we eat, we can, through natural processes, turn that into something else that then benefits the ecosystem or the food growing areas around us, which is very profound. So if you have composting in your neighborhood, that's amazing. If you can find a local uh, garden, that's amazing. If you can find something like LA compost in Los Angeles, um, or you can find a local farmer's market or garden and drop your compost off. Um, one of the programs that we're going to be doing with the launch of Feeding Tomorrow is on our impact campaign website, we're going to have uh, local resources for you to get involved with composting. Um, very big. Number two, uh, plant food and flowers. This sounds silly and potentially insignificant, but planting native flowers or some food in your front yard, backyard, side pot uh, has a profound impact. Even if you're planting one flower that attracts one bee or one hummingbird, that is huge. Um, do not underestimate the power of that. Three is sourcing. Um, if you can go to your farmer's market once a week, once a month is amazing. Uh, or if you're going to the grocery store, try, buy local as much as you can. And if they don't have local, ask them why they don't have local. Um, ask them why they don't have organic options. The more people that ask for these things, the more they are going to become available. And ultimately, that'll help bring the price down ultimately. So I think it's a bottom-up approach and a top-down approach. People need to, as much as they can, be supporting more sustainable options. And then also we need to support systems and policies that make those options more available. Um, and the last two things I would say are uh, putting plants at the center of your plate uh, is a huge, hugely positive impact. 
Um, there's a lot of great work being done by uh, Dan Butner and Blue Zones. Um, if you get a chance, there's a new Netflix docuseries called um, uh, Blue Zones with Dan Butner, uh, Living to 100. I think that's the title or it's close to that. But it's really about all these places in the world where people live the longest, healthiest lives. And it's a very plant-forward diet. There is some meat, for sure, but it is um, locally sourced and it is regeneratively or organically produced. So the animals are integrated into the system um, throughout time. Um, so in summary, compost as much as you can, um, plant food and flowers, support local, uh, reduce red meat or put plants at the center of your plate. Or if you do eat meat, source from a, um, a place that is organic or regenerative um, and then support policies and support um, ideas and policies at the local level and the federal level that support healthier food systems. Wow. Well, well, I have to say from a high level, I appreciate that you noted this is both a top down and bottom up approach. It's not just about you as an individual, but it's about these systems. And very quickly, you use the word regenerative quite a few times. Could we define that? Because when we talk about organic food, I feel like that is a label that people recognize. People are comfortable understanding organic and not organic. But when we're talking about purchasing from regenerative farms, for example, when it comes to animal products, when we're talking about supporting regenerative practices, what does that mean? Absolutely. And I think the the best way to look at it is if you look at the word sustainability, you look at kind of a, a draw a straight line out. And that is you are sustaining the ecosystem, keeping the ecosystem at the same level through time with all these different factors. Regeneration is the idea that you are actively supporting the health and growth of the ecosystem through time. So rather than keeping everything at an ongoing level, which ultimately does not keep pace with population growth and climate disasters and all these other shocks to the system, the idea and the spirit of regeneration is about how do we put systems into place that enhance the quality of the soil and the ecosystem through time. So what that looks like on a farm is on an industrial farm, you know, they tear down all the trees, they tear down all the flowers, uh, and they grow one type of crop, which is very unhealthy because ultimately that one type of crop is just sucking all of the nutrients out of the soil through time. So eventually what you have to do is you have to add chemicals that come from far away. Uh, that is not a sustainable situation. Regenerative systems, by contrast, include many different elements that enhance the ecosystem through time. So what that looks like in practice is on a regenerative type farm, you're going to have a couple things like multiple different types of crops. So you may have two, three, five, ten different types of crops um, of annual crops that are grown every year. You may have bushes and trees that all put down really deep root systems into the ground. Um, you're going to cover all of your soil with different plants. So um, you have multiple different types of plants and uh, root matter in the ground. Uh, and all of those things together are going to enhance the system through time. You're also going to uh, cycle animals through that system as well. So cows, chickens, and pigs who are going to act as your natural fertilizers. All of this together is going to bring back biodiversity. It is going to help sequester carbon. And all of these different root systems in the ground through time are growing soils. They are retaining water. Uh, they are sequestering carbon. And so it is systems thinking versus individual thinking. So to summarize, the current industrial model is linear, short-term thinking, uh, extractive, and 
degenerative, which means the quality of the whole system degrades over time. So in 50 years, when we have multiple hundreds of millions of more people or billion more people, uh, we cannot end the same level of production that does not work out and all the shocks to the climate system. Regeneration, the system through time enhances the entire system, the resilience, the biodiversity, the carbon sequestration, the health of the soils through time. So that when we do have more people, more shocks to the climate system, that regenerative system is able to better uh, withstand and produce for us into the future. So making the whole system better through time, through the practices that you implement. I feel like I can see a diagram in my head as you're describing all of these things because it makes so much sense when you describe it so comprehensively. This is a cycle. These are systems working together. So I really appreciate, again, how thorough you were with the descriptions of all of the different parts of, of true regeneration. And something you mentioned that I think is really important is resilience. And you alluded to climate change and climate impacts on these different food systems. And we spoke a little bit earlier about farms and, you know, these, these farmers that cannot predict seasonality of some of their crops or what is best to grow when. So I'd love to talk a little bit about how you've seen climate impacts in some of these systems or in some of these areas that you're working with, even in just the last few years that you've been in filmmaking. Absolutely. That's a great question. I think resilience is the term for the moment moving forward in terms of the whole climate conversation. Um, over the past seven years, you know, we have visited many farms around the country, but also with our production company, Common Table Creative, we have visited 65 farms across four continents all around the world, in India and Germany, throughout the US, Canada, um, and the Bahamas. And what we have seen is that climate change is not five years away. It's not 10 years away. It's not 15 years away. It is right now. And you can pick up any newspaper uh, or any publication any day of the week now and find a natural disaster happening or multiple natural disasters happening from floods to droughts to heat waves to extreme weather, you name it, uh, to fires. Pick one of those and it seems like every single day there is a new version of that happening one or multiple places around the world. And what we've seen is farms are already struggling from extreme drought. Farms are already struggling from extreme water. And what happens is even though there used to be rainy seasons, that would be a couple months long, or even though there used to be a drought that used to be a couple months long. Now farmers are seeing extreme weather happening in extremely short periods of time. So a farm in Wisconsin may have gotten a certain amount of rain over a three month period. Now they're getting that amount of rain in three hours. And so what happens is the entire farming system that you have in place, the farm can't handle that. And soil gets washed away, crops get flooded. Um, that's just not how the system has been set up. Or um, in Florida, with the recent you know, example of peaches, uh, the, the growing season was not cold enough for too long or not hot enough for too long or something like that. And the peaches never blossomed. And so the entire industry went down. And same thing is happening in you know, the um, Western United States right now with, um, crop, uh, with crop growing in Arizona. And so you see the current effects of climate disasters and extreme weather already impacting our farming systems today and right now. Um, and so it is only going to get more intense and it is only going to get worse. And I don't mean to be a fear monger, but it is just the reality of what we've seen. Uh, and the frequency is increasing. 
And what is most concerning is when there are multiple breadbasket failures. And breadbaskets are parts of the world where the majority of the food comes from. Um, California is a breadbasket. Uh, the Midwest of the United States is a breadbasket. Ukraine is a breadbasket. And as we've seen from you know the Russian war in Ukraine, that has had a huge impact on food systems and food pricing in Africa and Asia and different parts of that geopolitical part of the world. If there's a secondary breadbasket failure in the United States, in Wisconsin or in you know California, that has global implications for the food system. So with all of these uncertainties, this idea of regenerative agriculture, organic agriculture, different types of resilient farming systems is critical and central to the future survival of humanity. Um, and I say that in a pretty like serious way. Like, it, it is a very significant part of how our generation is going to be able to feed ourselves into the future. And what's beautiful is that when we set up these resilient systems, those systems also produce the healthiest nutrient-dense foods, the types of foods that ultimately are food as medicine. And we've gone far away from that in the agro-industrialized way of thinking. So we need to shift not just the farming systems, but the underlying philosophy that guides those systems. I have two immediate thoughts. So something you mentioned about bread baskets that really was a light bulb moment for me. Um, I'm comparing it in my head to energy systems, like power systems, and the value in having more local grid connections and microgrids and supporting energy further distributed. When we think about bread baskets, what's interesting to me is that there is this really intense pressure on these regions. Of course, economically, these regions have relied on them for a very long period of time. But also looking at what happens if these regions cannot support the economies that they're used to supporting. How are we supporting our local farmers? How are we creating more micro bread baskets in different areas? I feel like that's a really important part of the resilience conversation. And also what you mentioned about food as medicine. I don't hear that all that often. And not because I'm not looking for it necessarily, but I really, really appreciated that you mentioned one of the pillars of the film is healthcare. I want to talk a little bit about healthcare and food as medicine, if you're comfortable with that, because very comfortable. I feel like there's, there's two angles to this. Either it's a no-brainer, it's what you are fueling your body with is deeply important to your health, or there's the opposite where there's this... Um, kind of resistance to believing that your food is impacting your health. So I feel like there's there's a lot of like schools of thought around food as medicine. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience exploring that field. Absolutely. And I would just start by saying that everything that you eat and put in your body affects your health. I believe that. And, I hope that. And, that, <laughs> no, and I know you believe that, but I just, just to, to state, there is no world in which the food that you eat or don't eat or whatever other substances you do or do not put in your body or on your body for that matter, uh, affect your health. That is just a, a, a mathematical fact, and I'm not a math expert, but this is based on the numerous experts that we've spoken to. And the truth is that many cultures and people from around the world have considered food as medicine since the beginning of humanity. Um, and we, particularly in America, and the West in general, but Europe's in a better place than we are in terms of their food, for sure. Um, but particularly America, I think we are the case du jour of things gone wrong. Um, we have gone away from food as medicine in a very significant way. And as the food in America has become less nutrient dense, there has been a tendency to lean more on pharmaceutical companies to fill the need for health. And right now there is a 
very serious lack of um, an honest conversation about the healthcare system in this country, about are we going to continue to eat ourselves to death in a food system that is plaguing us with diabetes and cancer and all these other issues, or are we going to transition our food system to one that not only benefits the human health of the population, but also the health of our planet. And the government, a government, any government, I believe, has the duty, the obligation, the privilege to first and foremost, take care of their people. And right now we are not doing a good job of taking care of our people. We are not putting the health of our population first. We're not putting the education of our population first. Um, we're putting profits first. And that perspective needs to change. And I think people are starting to wake up to that. Um, but one of the big stories in the film is, and I don't want to give it away too much, but uh, there is a story of a, one of the main nutritionists who helps heal her, her father through whole food plants. And I don't want to give away more than that, but uh, it is a pretty profound story and realization of the impact of local food and nutrient-dense food on healing various ailments. And there is a direct connection between the nutrient-dense food that we are getting um, or not getting and the, the health outcome of our country. There is a reason why uh, the United States is one of the most unhealthy countries in the entire world. There is a reason why um, we have been using pesticides and chemicals for the past seven, not eight, eight decades. And there's a correlation there. Um, and so for us to have a genuine, honest conversation about how we want to be here on this planet, it has to start with food. And I believe that everyone should have access to healthcare. Everyone should have access to basic human health needs. Um, but we cannot have that conversation unless we talk about creating a healthier food system. Because unless we stop the problem of why people are getting sick and getting all these diseases, we cannot have a conversation about how to fix them. I feel like the challenge from my perspective is that we do not have more films like yours, that we do not have more media really documenting these experiences. Because when we talk about food as medicine, very often it's these anecdotal experiences. It's these stories that people are telling us, oh, my father went vegan and suddenly his cholesterol dropped. Or, you know, it's these smaller experiences that you're hearing and you don't have someone validating it for you, it feels like. Totally. Like someone is not telling you like, yes, you can believe this and you can really support yourself through the food systems that you're involving in your life. So I feel like the need for these stories to be documented in a way like Feeding Tomorrow, in a way like um, quite literally being taught in regular conversations, whether it's, you know, schools, you talked about education and yeah. how pivotal that is as a pillar of a food system, but really allowing people to believe these stories, I feel like is a huge next step as well. I, I could not agree more with you. And that belief is, it's a powerful motivator, you know, and we created this film with the kind of goal, like we don't want to preach. We don't want to just appeal to people on the coast, people in the middle of the country. We want this to be a broad based look at the future of food, but one that doesn't make you feel bad about seeing something differently. It doesn't make you feel bad about what you have been doing. It's supposed to motivate and inspire you to kind of think a little bit differently and think a little bit more uh, holistically. 
about the whole about the whole thing. But yeah, the stories are incredibly important. And there have been incredible stories that, you know, we are not operating a vacuum here. There have been incredible films out there, um, you know, Forks Over Knives, um, Food Inc. There's been incredible, uh, you know, Biggest Little Farm. There's been incredible stories of films who have primed people and started to get people out there. But we need more storytellers too. And I and we were so moved by the individuals that we met in our film that again, I was, you know, inspired to leave a business that I'd known my whole life to pursue something that I had no idea that I would be able to do, but felt like their stories needed to be told and felt like I and my team were the ones to help do that. Um, but if we can inspire not just thousands of people, but millions of people, that would be incredible. So I hope that uh, you can share the information in January when it's out. I would also just like to say that only when I started to think more conscientiously about where my food came from, did I start to think more holistically about all of my consumption, about where my t-shirt was being made or how my car was being powered or how, where did the shampoo come from? I never thought about any of that ever until I started meeting with farmers and started realizing that, oh, the shirt that we wear eventually like or ultimately was cotton that was grown in a field in the same way that you know carrots are grown or the material for this chair is a material that is either you know cotton or some kind of fiber or was made synthetically from fossil fuels and like how'd that get here and so i think it opens up this broader understanding and also this deep sense of empowerment of with my food dollars with who i support with going to get a vintage t-shirt instead of that new t-shirt, I can have a profound impact on my own personal health and on the environment and on my community. And that is a powerful realization. And I think reconnecting with food, the people that grow it and how they're growing it is a first step in understanding that we too can have a powerful impact in the world around us. And it doesn't have to be this sad, bad lighting, ugly car kind of situation. It can be a delicious, fruitful, regenerative new world that we grow and live in together, where there are front yard farms and backyard farms and school farms. Um, and we think different. We, we move from a place of, I am here to dominate nature and the natural world for the sake of short-term profit, to we are here to support the stewardship of this planet. And in doing so, our own you know, personal health, our connections to one another, our connection to the environment, um, and leaving the world for our kids in a much better place than, than we found it. Well, thank you so much for that, Oliver. I feel like that's such a powerful note. I think something that you mentioned that immediately resonated with me was this mention of larger systems, that food for you was this gateway to thinking more about your consumption. And I feel like people had that experience during covid and we were talking about supply chain failures and people were suddenly like, what's the supply chain? What are we what are we so concerned about? And maintaining this momentum and realizing that you can take that same curiosity and apply it to different areas of your life is wildly, wildly powerful. Just encouraging people to ask more questions is the first step. I think you said that so brilliantly and it is so true. And I think people are not going to make all the, it's a lot to make all these changes yeah. all at once to become a, you know, a Tesla driving, you know, front yard gardening vegan immediately. And I'm not saying I'm not abdicating for that, but point is 
it takes a lot to make all these changes and the systems are not set up to make all those changes affordable and readily available to the majority of people. So that's not realistic. What we can do and what we're trying to do with the film is say, we can't tell you everything about everything, nor are we going to try. What we are going to try to do is spark your curiosity to what you were saying. We're going to try to spark your emotional involvement and your curiosity to say, here's a breadth of things that you can look at that you can start to learn more about. Here's some resources to do it. And here's the impact that it can have. Go have fun. And if some people want to learn about composting, groovy. Some people want to you know, put some more plants that's under their plate. Cool. Some people don't want to even change the way they eat, but they want to go to the thrift store because they're like, oh, sustainable fashion, fast fashion and fast food are really connected. Going to the farmer's market and going to the thrift store are also kind of a similar vibe. I could do that. Yeah. Great. Um, it is a conversation starter and it is a beginning to a new way of thinking. Uh, and if that happens, if people want to change their car to an electric car, and then that shift ultimately leads to other shifts, that's great too. Um, I think we cannot fault people at all. A, B, fault them for not making all these perceived changes fast enough because it's really hard and it's not easy. But we can reward, encourage, and incentivize to uh, people uh, to make those small changes in a way that makes sense for them and hope that one leads to more, which I think it will once they realize that the switch to a more sustainable or the switch to a more regenerative way of being on the planet can and should be delicious, should be fun. Um, and if it's not, no one's gonna wanna do it. So I think we have to make it excellent and fun and let, you know, set a great table and light candles uh, and enjoy a good bottle of wine and have some fun while we save the world. Bring back the dinner party. This is something we want. Bring back the dinner party. Oh my gosh, wow. Oliver, thank you so, so much. This has been so great. I feel like I've learned so much from you in such a short period of time. It is my absolute pleasure. Thank, thank you so you. much for having me. Thank you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.